Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We have learned in the past few days, not just us, but I mean, it's, it's come out in the last few days that Hamilton will soon have a Krispy Kreme location. It'll be on Rymel Road near Dartnell, if you know that area at all, sort of between where Michelangelo's is. If you ever go out to banquets, Michelangelo's and Carmen's up in that area, Nebo Road area, that whole, that's where it's going to be. And I got a feeling that it is going to do reasonably well. However, I don't know for sure that it will. I suspect it will, but there's a lot of fast food places and a lot of businesses that you would have said, guaranteed this is going to be a success. And we were surprised afterwards when it didn't turn out quite as we expected. I want to bring in Joanne McNeish. Uh, she's an associate professor of marketing with Toronto Metropolitan University. She joins us now. Joanne, thank you for doing this today. Scott, thank you so much. And great music to start off this segment. Ben, Love it. Ben is on top of his game for sure, choosing the music. <laughs> This is, this seems to me like it is an absolute no, can't miss, surefire winner. And yet, as I said, um, there have been examples of whether it's fast food or other businesses, you know, in Canada, very famous one. We thought for sure Target would be a huge hit when it came to Canada. Didn't pan out. Is this going to work? So uh, funny, that was one example I was thinking of, and Nordstrom, of course, has just left the Canadian market. And so American companies, which have uh, many, many successes, McDonald's and uh, Wendy's, for example, uh, Starbucks is pulling back from the marketplace. They're adopting a Tim Hortons model. So no guarantees of success ever in business. And Krispy Kreme has tried to get in the market Uh, since uh, the year 2000. They have tried and failed and tried and failed. uh, I I count four, maybe five times. So they started as a joint venture with a Canadian company. Then they tried uh, using a franchise organization. Then they bought those locations back. They were sold to Keurig, the coffee company. Mm. So they really have struggled. I will say I'm a big fan of donuts in any form, and I quite like Krispy Kreme donuts. Um, I wasn't one of the people that lined up in 2001, (laughs) boy, but it's awfully tempting. Like when they're there, I I always have to sample them, you know, as a branding expert. Oh, of course, naturally, yes, naturally. But I, I do, one of the other reasons why I wonder, and again, I do expect them to work here and I do expect them to succeed, but this is also a city that for... Well, I mean, Tim Hortons started here, and for years this has been a Tim Hortons city. There's a Tim Hortons on almost every corner, it seems, and now we have other donut places that are doing really well. Is there a is there a breaking point or a saturation point for donuts where a city will just say, no, we're good? So donuts is one of those products that seems to do well in lots of different forms, and I think what you're observing is almost the artisanal donut is doing quite well. So Tim Hortons... Uh, says they're not concerned and they don't need to be concerned. They own about 70% of the out-of-home coffee market and about 50 to 55%, depending on when you're measuring, of the cafe donut sort of fast food lunch business. So they are a formidable competitor and they have did successfully blunt uh, Starbucks introduction. They will work extremely hard against Krispy Kreme. And this might be good for the Tim Hortons business more than it is good for Krispy Kreme. So again, 
beautiful product, interesting business model with its theater type display. So you can watch the product being made and coming out of COVID, we're all a little bit more concerned how things are made. So those are good things. Um, but when you're somebody who seem to, there's something wrong with the way they keep entering the market. So this time what they're coming in with is their, their kind of what they call their factory or theater where you can watch the donuts being made, but they're also adding smaller cafes where the donuts will be delivered twice daily uh, so that they're twice daily fresh donuts. That's in complete contrast to Tim Hortons who basically do not serve fresh any arguably do not serve fresh donuts anymore it's made from frozen dough and so it's not the same experience so from product quality point of view and taste Krispy Kreme might have the edge but in terms of business model brand familiarity and sheer success Tim Hortons still rules there has and to also, Sorry. No, no. There, and there has to have been by this point uh, an enormous amount of market research done before you're going to come in and try again and build a new place. I mean, that's the norm now. But it does seem to me odd that if you look around North America, there are places, there are areas where certain fast food brands work amazingly well and yet don't translate. You would think that if it tastes good, it would taste good to everybody or broadly to everybody. Mm. It doesn't seem to be the case. Like it really, there are targeted areas that seem to do better for some things. Scott, that's such a great point. In fact, interestingly, one could argue Tim Hortons has the same problem in the US. They've never been able to get traction and have done similar kind of entry that Krispy Kreme has. And so I would say, now there's such uh, an amount of research available, social media, trial, test market. There's so many different ways you can investigate a market, but I think you've hit it on the head. It seems to come down to capturing that area's or country's imagination. And Tim Hortons seems, to, even though it's no longer actually a Canadian company, seems to have captured and held on to a Canadian sensibility for donuts and coffee and we're not going to get into an argument over the quality of the coffee i personally like it others don't um and so Krispy Kreme uh is just facing the inverse problem tim hortons has never made much of a foothold in the u.s Krispy Kreme has never been able to get much traction at the height of their entry here uh, they had 16 locations and basically Krispy Kreme lumps them in with japan mm. and i find that fascinating that those two markets in their mind go together and it might be just the sheer difficulty in understanding the Canadian sensibility mm. for coffee and donuts. The, the other piece for Krispy Kreme, as long as they don't have a lot of locations, donuts and coffee are a convenience item. Pe people look for that kind of food. I'm in the area, therefore I will uh, eat it. A Krispy Kreme is a bit interesting. There's different ways they've tried. I think Airport locations could be important for them. In other words, we're a bit of a cap, people are captive audience in an airport. But it is a fascinating thing in terms of product quality for a donut. I think they are, are a leader uh, over other stores, craft donuts aside. And yet I think because they've never gotten traction in terms of the right number of locations to make it convenient for people that as a brand, they don't seem to have got the accessibility awareness. They're iconic for donuts. And I think if you ask Canadians, people would know who they are. 
And if you've been to the U.S., you definitely have tried them. But if you are not available to people, donuts are not something that mm. we search out. We got one minute left, and I want to go to your real area of expertise here. You are a professor of marketing. Uh, when this, when there is this competition, how much should we expect when the place finally is about to get up and running or does get up and running? How much should we expect to be seeing ads and pushing it, or is it going to be entirely word of mouth because they've got a name already? Well, see, interesting. They, in their past, have only used word of mouth. I think this is their time to shine. I think product samplings. I think samples to the door. I think go back to some really traditional ways of gathering energy. You're right. They haven't started building it. Um, and so I'm not quite as familiar with that location, but that seems like a decent location to put what, what do they call their theater mm. or factory style location. Easy so to get I to from right, the highway. Yeah. The right no, yeah it, okay. It's easy Big to get place. to off the link and it'll be fast. And yeah, I, th I mean, the location I think will work. It's just, I, I do wonder, I do wonder if it'll be, as I say, word of mouth, like it has traditionally been, and people say, like you and I have both, man, that's great donuts. Or if they'll now saturate the market with tons of advertising. We're, we'll see, I guess. It'll be an interesting strategy, whatever they choose. Well, and it's one I'll be following, but I think, in fact, if they don't make a big push in terms of promotion and sampling, get people immersed in it, if they don't take advantage of their location, if they don't use billboards, if they don't do a really hard sell, I think, unfortunately, uh, it'll be the same result that they've had mm. at least four other times. But it's such an interesting question. I love these ones. This one will be fun to follow. Joanne McNeish, Associate Professor of Marketing at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Over the number of last number of weeks, number of months, um, we were even talking about it yesterday. It, it's been unavoidable what's been going on in this area, in the world. After the October 7 attack by Hamas, it, you cannot, even if you are not physically involved or caught up in protests or things that affect your life, it is basically impossible not to be aware of what is going on. But there are people who are caught up in these things or who are affected by these things. And now on behalf of a number of Jewish students who attend McMaster University, a class action lawsuit is being filed seeking $77 million in damages from McMaster University and McMaster Student Union. As I understand it, and my next guest will be able to help us out with this, as I understand it for essentially inactivity against this, for not doing something to protect Jewish students from what has been happening on campus. It's a very, and, and it's not the only university, by the way. There are a number of universities, um, Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, uh, in this country, University of British Columbia, York University, Toronto Metropolitan University, Queen's University, all also facing similar lawsuits. Sandra Ziskind is a lawyer representing the group that is suing Master. She joins us now. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for having me on. This is uh, a number of weeks ago, I guess maybe a couple of months ago now, I ended up writing something for the paper when uh, there was a protest and pictures of the hostages, like happens a lot of places, were being torn down, wondering about this. I never, though, thought that the day would come or the situation would come when we would see a class action lawsuit because I don't remember ever hearing about something like this before. Where did this come from? Now, this is unprecedented, but unfortunately, this is being... Um 
this needs to happen because of the failure of the universities to protect their Jewish students on campus. So no, this is definitely unprecedented. Nobody has thought to go down this road before, but Diamond and Diamond has partnered with Lawfare, who, as you said, is also responsible for going after Carnegie Mellon in the United States. And we are going after York University, UBC, Queens, and Concordia as well. Mm. It's uh, very important that these universities get held to task and that they do what's right and hold up their charter and protect Jewish students. Are you representing a particular Jewish group or was there a student that came for how basically what's the origin? What's the genesis of how this has come to be? And that's a great question. So what happened was essentially, uh, first I had some students contact me about York University, um, my alma mater, and started to explain to me how bad it was on campus. So we filed against York University. Uh, it wasn't a, a union. It wasn't just a group of students. It was literally just students reaching out to me saying, hey, I don't feel safe going to school. Then with the publicity of the York University lawsuit, it spiraled out of control. And then, as you can imagine, I got every single university in Canada, people calling me from all over. And how, uh, and again, I never understand these things, but how do we get to $77 million? How is that number reached? The number, the number is insignificant. The number is there more only because I have no other way of quantifying in a civil damages claim what, what, um, how to pay and how to compensate these students. The number, although, is really irrelevant. We're not looking for the money. We're looking for real policy changes. We're looking for, and and quite frankly, any form of compensation I'm going to be telling my clients, and I've already told my clients should all go towards Holocaust education and education to make sure that people understand exactly what they're doing. Because clearly the universities are failing. If university students think, think that Hamas a known and recognized terrorist organization is something to be lauded and celebrated, then we're failing as a society and as secondary institutions of learning. One of the really interesting I, thoughts behind this, and, and as I was going through this, and help me out here, because many, many lawsuits, class action or otherwise, many lawsuits result from an action that somebody took that had a negative effect on someone else. In Correct. this case, in this case, you're saying not taking an action is the problem that is causing the harm to somebody. How do you prove that a non-action is essentially an action? Well, to be fair, it's not essentially a non-action. There's also something called willful blindness. You can't walk, you can't pretend something is not going on when it's going on. So if you know that a group is being targeted and you are not doing anything about it, you are just as responsible as if you were doing it yourself. So if I was going to a campus where they were saying, I'm going to slaughter all Asian students, all Asian students should be killed, and the university took no action, heads would roll people would be fired the communities would be up in arms however for some reason every other denomination every other group is protected but when it comes to jewish students and they're chanting from the river to the sea antifada all of these calls to genocide that is somehow allowed because it is for jewish students and that in and of itself is anti-semitism has this is this affected would it be the same if universities had not over the last i don't know decade two decades whatever put so much effort into cracking down on microaggressions and and you know things that over, some some people look at and go come on that's ridiculous that these things are outlawed the fact that they have spent so much time saying that everybody on campus deserves and will be safe 
Does that affect this? If those things had not happened, would there be a lawsuit here? Or would at that point you have to say, well, that's just part of campus life that you deal with it? Or do those things exacerbate what you're talking about? I, I think the ability to try and allow every single point of view to the point where we're fend- we're so far left, we're bending over so backwards that we're breaking at this point in time is probably what is occurring. But we're missing the fundamental problem. You are allowed to criticize the state of Israel. You are allowed to say, I do not agree with the government politics. You are allowed to have a spirited and, and intellectual debate about the politics of Israel. You do not have to agree with the government. You do not have to agree with Bibi Netanyahu. You do not have to agree with any of it. You can have a spirited debate. What you are not allowed to do is to call for the destruction of a state. It's as simple as that. And what happened is, is they fell so back left, so far forward, that they are now basically propping up a terrorist organization. It is insane to me that in Canada, I have to worry about my kids going to school at a place where they cannot feel safe because they are Jewish. And this is not about Palestinian rights. Palestinian rights is a separate discussion. You are not allowed to call for the destruction of people. As simple as that. And if you believe anything except that Israel has a right to exist, you are an anti-Semite. Full stop. Full stop. You can agree. You don't have to agree with their actions. You don't have to agree with the war. You don't have to agree with anything. But if you don't agree that Israel has a right to exist, you are an anti-Semite. And if the universities have a hard time understanding that, then it is my job and the job of my law firm to make sure they understand it. The fact that you have chosen McMaster among, I think there's four or five, you listed them, but four or five other Canadian universities. There's certainly a lot more universities than that in this country. The fact that you have identified and chosen McMaster to sue in this particular case and their students union, is that an indication that you believe McMaster is among the worst at this? Correct. Correct. And that's not for me. That is from students coming forward because I personally have no idea which campuses are good or which campuses are bad. I have to hear the horror stories on a daily basis. I am the managing partner of the largest personal injury firm in Canada. And I am used to call volumes and I'm used to people calling in and people calling in to complain. This is all I do all day. The call volume for these type of lawsuits across Canada was so unprecedented that I had to pull lawyers off of cases just to answer phones to deal with the call volumes right across Canada. And be very clear, we will go after each university one at a time. McMaster's just next on the list. That is Sandra Ziskin. She is a lawyer representing the group that is suing McMaster University. I really appreciate taking time to explain this today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's a guy who I have been listening to, probably you have too, uh, for, well, I was kind of surprised today when I went back and looked when he first broke onto the scene. It's been a while. But over the last 30 plus years, uh, he has 20 studio albums, eight Juno Awards, multi-platinum sales, one of the best known Canadian artists out there who is still out there doing his thing. January the 25th, he will be at the Fallsview Casino. Tickets are available. His name is Colin James. Joins us now. Colin, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am excellent. I was, uh, maybe you are too, but I was kind of shocked when I went back today and I looked and I went, when did I first hear about Colin James? And I saw the date and I went, wow, (laughs) it's been a while that you've been doing this. Yeah. Yeah. It creeps up on you. You know, it's like, uh, I was kind of going through the the amount of records I've had out the other day, and my daughter made me a little, you know, a little clay pot for my for my picks when she was like a little kid, 
and uh, and I realized that it was quite a few years ago because it stopped at a record that was like 10 records ago. <laughs> <laughs> she put the names of all the records on this little ceramic thing she made. And uh, I started counting the records since then. Oh, my God. Yeah. There have got to be a few songs. I mean, look, I, I we all do stuff for a living, but there have got to be a few songs that you go back and listen to on an album and go, I don't even know if I remember how to play that. <laughs> Yeah, to a degree. I mean, there's some some songs like every record you make. Some songs make their way into your, you know, to to be to become songs that you you can't get away without playing, and some songs don't. Uh, you know, every record, uh, every every record you have, uh, you you hope they'll all come with you for the ride. But usually, uh, on every record, three or four or five or six, at best, will uh, continue with you. So. Uh, yeah, I've got I've got songs I love, and I got songs that, you know, after this many records, I guess I'm on record twenty now. So there's always a few songs you didn't love, but uh, you loved them at the time. Well, and you said that you know there are songs you have to play. I mean, you you, I can't even imagine how many times you've played Five Long Years or Chicks and Cars or whatever. I mean, these these are you cannot if you performed a concert and you didn't play that, people would be angry, right? And this is you have to play this every time. To a degree. Uh, I mean, you know, I've gone through different phases of my life where I felt differently about things. I think there was a time when, and you know, it's just the way it is. There was a time I wouldn't play voodoo thing. And there was a time I wouldn't play five long years just for a while. Um, you know, I think you go through phases like that. Um, and chicken cars, to be honest with you, I, I don't play. Really? Uh, no, not really. One of my favorites. Wow. Oh, yeah, you know, that's the thing. Um, you know, some songs made it all the way along, and others didn't so much. But lately, I play uh, I play voodoo and five long uh, willingly and happily. Hmm. So, uh, yeah. I, I've asked this question of other artists, but for you, what's it like? Because those songs, uh, people know those songs. They know the words. They, they love to sing along to them. What's the experience like for you when you're standing on stage and you're starting to play a song that you wrote? You created this. And all of a sudden, the crowd starts singing back your creation to you. It's incredible, you know. It's uh, it's, it's just it, it, for those moments, you know, you're you're at at one with the people who came to see you, and you're singing together. And it's uh, whether you're playing in front of a, a theater full of three hundred people, or a, a, or a, a you know outdoor concert with six thousand people. It's always a thrill, you know, and I think as time goes by, you realize, you know, you realize how lucky you, you were to have it because um, they don't happen every day. Mm. And, you know, they when they do, you know, you had to have all a bunch of things work in tandem and work well. And, uh, you know, uh so you, 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 you never take that for granted. And even a song like my cover of Into the Mystic uh, by Van Morrison has become one of those songs for me that uh, people expect and, 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 and wait for. And I, I love it. So I've never had a problem with it. Can you, how many times have you ahead of time when you've been writing or performing or recording been right about which ones were going to be huge hits are they do you find it easy to predict which ones are really going to click with people or is that always a mystery 
it can really be a mystery. And to be honest with you, Into the Mystic was a complete, took everybody by surprise. I mean, we hid that song on the last song of that Limelight record. You know, mostly because it was a cover. It wasn't my song. But I don't think anybody thought for a minute it was going to be a popular song. Uh, I was I was going through a phase at the time of intense Van Morrison fandom. <laughs> <laughs> and I really, honestly, I went and saw him live uh, in Los Angeles. I went and saw him live in California. I mean, in uh, Northern California at a winery. I, I, you know, I would actually go out and seek out his shows. So, you know, it was, a, it was it ended up being a real blessing. And, um, you, but, you, you know, you can predict to a point. I remember being on a beach in Mexico after finishing Just Came Back. And I remember being up about four feet out in the water with my Walkman. Yes, Walkman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a few years ago, and, yep. And listening to the, the brand new mix from Memphis, Tennessee of Just Came Back with my then producer, Joe Hardy. And I had this feeling, you know, occasionally you get this feeling in your, in your, in your chest and you go, oh my God, I think this song is going to do pretty good. Um, and, uh, and it did. So sometimes, you know, and, and other times you don't. <laughs> does, does, I've never written a song, uh, and I certainly never performed a song and I'm guessing most people listening have never. Does it still, after all these years, is there still a thrill involved or, I mean, this is your career. This is your job. Is it, I got to sit down and I got to write something cause I got to produce something. Is it, is it still exciting? Absolutely. Because, you know, it doesn't, again, you know, you have a lot of ideas. Not all your ideas are going to come to fruition. Not everyone is going to be a uh, lightning bolt of inspiration. So you have to keep doing it just to keep the the, the muscle uh, there. And I think, you know, you never get rid of the idea that you can have an idea anywhere, anytime. And if you foster that seed you can have a song before you know it and you can't even believe it. You know, uh, I wrote a song last week and it, I quite like it. And it, it just, I, I got inspired by something. I went into my studio and boom, there's a song, you know, and it's exciting. It's like, uh, it, it's exciting because you can create something that's, that's built for you, for you, mm. you know, built for your mind, built for your, for your fingers, to play guitar with, and it's like a custom made thing for you. And uh, it's never been something I've, it, maybe it wasn't the, the thing I was best at in my life, um, but it's something I've kept doing uh, my whole life. And I have a new record uh, that's getting mixed right now. And I've written nine songs on it out of the 12. And I'm really excited about it. And um, so, yeah, you never lose that thrill, that thrill that you can make something out of nothing is, is incredible. What's interesting and what's impressive about that is that there's a lot of artists and I think you would might agree, you might disagree, but I think there's a lot of artists who have a creative sweet spot of a few years. You look back, you know, big time artists and you can find a very short period of time where they were prolific and they came up with a lot of stuff, but it seems as though there's almost a best before date on some people's ability to really create stuff. You've, you've been doing this, as I say now for three, almost, well, more than three decades and keep going. That, that's an impressive thing. Yeah. You know, I started playing 
early. Like I, you know, I, I started playing at 13 years old, playing in bands, and and I, you know, I, I went, I, I, you know, I quit school early at 16 and, and hit the road, and you know, I it was really I just thought that if I could find a way to do this my whole life uh, in a way that's sustainable and and um, wouldn't that be amazing? And, uh, you know, I think it, I, I've picked a genre that kind of allows you a little bit of that. You know, I'm not playing punk rock <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, uh, something that needs that teenage angst. Uh, you know, I picked the music that you could kind of grow into and, and, um, have experience, uh, mean something to the music. And, uh, so, it's really been awesome. You know, this, this new record we have coming out around the band is I got just some incredible musicians on it. And, um, uh, I just, you know, I, 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 uh, I love singing uh, and playing maybe more now than I ever have. Mm. And, uh, I'm ready to go. <laughs> are, are you, are you a guy who can listen to your early stuff from like the eighties and just appreciate it for being as good as it was? Or are you one of those people, and there's lots of them out there, who go, man, I wish I had done that a little bit different, or I wish I just had this different note. Are, can you just look at, listen to it and appreciate it, or are you always tinkering? Mostly I can. There's some records I have no, I mean, I can hear the, the youth in my voice on Little Big Band 1, uh, Shirley and, and No More Dog, and I can, I, can, I can feel the lack of experience in my I can hear the lack of experience in my singing, but I don't mind it. And uh, I don't mind it, in, especially in that context. Uh, you know, <clears throat> Why'd You Lie is a beautiful song. Yep. I wish I wrote it, but I didn't. Uh, but that's a song that I think I sing better now because I just, I don't know. I hear it now and I hear a really young person singing it. Uh, but I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm generally generally pretty good about it. <laughs> you know, I don't mind it. Uh, it's funny, you know, I mean, a lot of music from the eighties, uh, you can certainly tell it was produced in the eighties. And uh, I think people are a bit more, uh, I mean, I guess everyone always thinks right now is the most modern time ever. And it's never gonna, uh, it's, it's always the most, uh, you know, right now is the time when everything's got their act together. Uh, and I'm sure everyone thought that in the eighties too, but it's, you know, some of the stuff from the eighties did not age super well. You well, know, so. I, I got to tell you, you go back to, uh, I mean, you're, you, you, as you say, you've put out a ton of albums, but you just listed off as you were going through there, listing some of those songs. And I was like, yeah, that's a great song. There's a great song. I mean, it's, th- those are songs that have held up, just came back and, and why'd you lie? Why'd you lie? I had, until you said it, I had kind of forgotten about that one. Apologies. But as soon as you said yeah. it, it started playing in my head and I was like, that is a great song. Yeah, you know, that song uh, has just really, I, I, I do it every show, whether I'm doing an acoustic show or a trio show or a whole band. Um, I always do it proudly. Uh, it was written um, uh, not by me, like I say, uh, but it, it's a song that it really has, uh, Morgan Davis is the writer. He's, he lives out east in the east coast now of Canada, but he was actually from St. Louis. Um, and somebody pointed that song to me, pointed that song out to me, and it really had a lot to do with my early radio play. And uh, I remember living in a beat-up little apartment 
and going to a confectionery and having it come on the radio. It was the first time I'd ever heard one of my songs on the radio, and it was staggering, you know, when, when, when you've moved to a place where you're just lucky if you're going to pay your rent, and all of a sudden a confectioner is playing a song of yours on the radio. It was staggering, you know? Yeah, I, I, I've got the image right now of you, uh, that scene and that thing you do when they hear the song on the radio for the first time. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but... Uh, um, uh, I don't know. All right, no, it's and and that first time when a band or a group hears their song on the radio, I can only imagine how uh, how cool that is. Uh, Colin James is going to be at Falls U Casino January twenty fifth. One of the uh, the great Canadian songwriters and still doing it. Call us, and I really appreciate you taking time to talk today. Really, uh, thanks for doing this. No, no problem. Pleasure. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from six to eight on nine hundred CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.